Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast. My name is Tzvi Hirschfield, and I have the distinct privilege and pleasure of discussing the profound analysis and deep insights into the Parsha from my wonderful colleagues at the Pardes Institute. So glad you could join us. Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome back to our Parsha podcast. We are up to Parshat Lech Lecha. However, I want to be clear that we are actually taping or recording this episode on the 10th, which means that for those of you who have been following the news, you know that uh, very difficult, horrible things have been happening in this country since the holiday of Simchat Torah. It would be, I think, misleading and dishonest for that to not come up in our study together because Torah study relates to life and it's on our minds, it's heavy on our hearts. So while we are not a politics podcast or a military analysis podcast, what's happening will certainly come up in our conversation and I want you to be prepared for that. In addition, I just want to add that this episode has been sponsored by Jeff and Alyssa Hurok in honor of their dear friends and family who have engaged with and enhanced Jeff's Torah study and have encouraged his participation with Pardes. So we are certainly grateful to Jeff and Alyssa for their generosity. So here we are, and I am privileged to be joined by my friend and colleague and teacher, Judy Klitzner. Welcome, Judy Klitzner. Thank you so much, Tzvi. It's always a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad that you named the mood that we are both very much in in light of the unprecedented, unspeakable horrors that have taken place here in recent days. And as you said very correctly, a lot of the feeling that accompanies that is going to underlie the study of Lech Lecha, even if on the surface it might seem that it does not have much to do with it. Which I think is perfectly appropriate and may be helpful for those of us who are really struggling. So let's jump in. I want to I begin with what I think most readers of this Parsha are struck by, and that's the abruptness of Lech Lecha. That here we are, we've been telling a story of humanity, starting with the Garden of Eden and moving through these narratives, and then suddenly, it feels almost out of the blue, God meets this guy who we don't really know that much about, so we don't know why he's the guy, and he's presented with this vision of a mission and a special nation. What are we, the readers, supposed to do with the blank space between last week's Parsha and this week's Parsha? All good questions. So I'm going to try to address a lot of that. And I think it's a great idea to start at the very beginning and see how this fits in contextually. So the creation story, I'd like to summarize it. Everybody knows we've got two different creation stories. Human beings are created in chapter one of Genesis. They're created again in chapter two. In chapter one, I think the outstanding phrase that's used there in relation to humanity is the phrase Tselem Elohim, that human beings are created in God's unique image. And I understand that to mean a lot of things, but primarily to mean that just as God is unique, so are human beings meant to be unique. I think in some sense it also means that human beings are hardwired to connect with God, to be godly, to be godlike, to find the godliness within themselves, to reconnect with that godly being. Then we get to chapter two in Bereshit, and I loosely thinking about Rabbi Soloveitchik's famous and masterful essay, The Lonely Man of Faith. One of the many things that he does there is he talks about the two-tiered creation there, where you have humanity created in two parts. First, the man, and then the woman. And he goes up into this whole 
kind of study about the individual in relation to society, that human beings, he says, have to be created singularly first so that they can become full individuals. That has to take place first. And then human beings have to reach out and incorporate what he calls society. They have to become social beings. And so by the introduction of woman in that story, we have humanity first as a single individual, and then humanity as a social being. So already in the, cha in the story of creation, we've got this dichotomy, the, the personal, the individual versus the social human. And also we have very strongly rooted notions of humans created in the image of God. So the purpose then, what you're saying, that the Torah is setting up for us Assuming what you mean is we are not getting some kind of scientific biological description of creation, but rather is setting up for us a vision of who human beings are, what we're intended to be, what our capacities are. And you're saying already at the beginning, this is multifaceted. We're not simplistic creatures. And in fact, I would take this idea of the individual and the social, my own sense is, that might often pull us in different directions at the same time. Fantastic. And I think what we get in a sense in the early stories of Brashid is that push and pull. And society, in a sense, tries it one way and fails colossally at it, and tries it another way and fails almost as colossally at it. And all that happens before we meet Avraham in Lech Lecha. Okay, you're going to have to spell out for us a little I, bit the, I, these two big failures. I understand. So huge failure number one, I think it starts with Cain and Abel. Well, we have, I would say, the kind of extreme individualism where one human being destroys another human being, takes that person's life for his own needs. He objectifies that person. He, in a sense, takes the idea of Etzelem Elohim away from that person and eradicates it. And I think in doing that, he also destroys his own Selim Enosh. He becomes less human, less godly. He sacrifices that in order to do this terrible thing. And I look at that as kind of a foreshadowing of the big picture problem, which comes with the flood. I think there's a direct line, and I think the text almost plays with this, with the language, from Hevel to the Mabul. Right? The same letters are played with there, where, in a sense, society at large says what matters is only oneself. It doesn't matter who you trample over, whose Tselem Elohim you erase, as long as you get what you need. And significantly, and this gets back to your opening words today, the terrible behavior is described with this really resonant word, which is Hamas. They are practicing Hamas against one another, this kind of power-driven violence against people. And that, God says, simply cannot continue to exist. That's not the kind of individual that I want to have in this world, and God decimates them all. Even though that what you're saying is we were sort of hardwired in the direction of that extreme, in the sense that if part of our Tselem is individualism or a sense of my own uniqueness, mm -hmm. taken to an awful, hideous extreme, my uniqueness leaves no room for any kind of other, even my brother, right. and therefore I'm in it just to take and have and serve myself to the greatest of my ability. And that, of course, as you pointed out, leads to destruction. Destruction. So then you have what I would like to call an overcorrection, and that is in the generation of the Tower of Babel, where the people say, well, that didn't work, so let's, let's see what happens if we erase all sense of the individual. And this is an amazing story. I've spent a lot of time thinking about it and writing about it. I will just telegraph it as quickly as possible. My thoughts are that it's a society that flattens out all, all semblance of individuality. The I is replaced by the we, 
significantly, there's not a single identifiable character in this story. It's all society imposing not just a kind of unity with one another, but a uniformity in thought, in speech, in geography, in everything else. And the most ironic piece in that story is that they say, in a story that has erased all names, and names, I think, are really the Bible's wonderful symbol of the individual, a person of name, and Buber has written about this extensively, a person of name is a person of import, a person who gets on the biblical record and stays on our record for all time, that you need to be an I, he says, to be an individual in order to reach out to a thou, that's very Buberian, the I-thou, but the I-thou has to start with an I. If I am not I, I cannot encompass in any healthy, constructive way any other, whether that's another person or even God. So in a sense, what they're doing there by erasing their names, by erasing the sense of the individual, is they are making it impossible for human beings to interact with God, and God says, that's not what I want either. The great irony there is that what they say as they destroy the names, they say, We'll make a name for ourselves by having no names. And God says, you want a name? The name you're going to get if you do it that way. The story ends with, Your name is going to be oblivion, scattering to the winds. Nobody's ever going to hear of you ever again. Well, it's such a striking, like to use a name for ourselves, right? If the whole point of names are to give us a sense of individual import and identity, and you're Judy and I'm Svi and awareness of all that, one shared name basically suggests we're doing away with all of that. But on the other hand, you can understand that if your legacy is the flood, if your legacy is look what happens to people when they think about themselves, there's nothing more dangerous than a group of individuals around. The only way to protect ourselves is to become one amorphous blob. And then we'll be safe. But of course, as you said, God's not thrilled with that approach. Right. And I think you're making an important point that it's kind of a reaction to what they saw. But as so often happens, where people are reacting against something, they go too far in the other direction. And there is something very poignant about this, that both of these these extremes lead to the same result, which is not a getting closer to God, to reclaiming that Selim Elohim. But in each case, that Selim is distanced more and more. Okay, so now that leads us finally to the parsha that we're supposed to be discussing, and that is the parsha of Lech Lecha. Oh, we are going to get to Lech Lecha. I think so. That's really good news. Yes, no, that's what we were brought here to do. I think we we have to do it. Yes. And here, as you uh, prefaced all of this with, the big question is, why, why him? I mean, we have no indication prior to Lech Lecha, to the words that God speaks to Avraham, that Avraham has done anything to warrant his being chosen. This And so we have to go on this, I think, very important but relevant digression here. Why Avraham of all people? It's missing in the text. And so the Midrash does what the Midrash does, which is to fill in gaps such as these. It's not in the text, so let's write in something or a possible scenario or even a likely scenario that answers that question. And what is the likely scenario is that Avraham deserves to be called upon by God because there was this little boy who discovered monotheism all on his own. He shattered his father's idols, and then he was taken to the king, and he's thrown into the fiery furnace, and he is miraculously saved from the fiery furnace. Okay, so we all know that. Many of us are going to be looking desperately through our Bible to find where it says that in the text. I did as a kid. As a kid, I remember being frustrated beyond belief. Where is the story about the idols? I just always assumed. But what you're saying, it makes a very good point. 
we need some understanding. Why him? Exactly. Right? It's not me. It's not anybody else I know. What did this man do to warrant this communication, this mission? So I feel like it's almost we can't live with the not knowing. Good. So what that Midrash does is it invents this story. But I think this story has a great deal of support in some of the very subtle messages that we are getting inside the text. And one such clue is picked up by the great Hasidic teacher, the Meha Shiloach, the 19th century Polish Hasid, the Ishbitzer. And in this, he picks it up just from the words lech lecha, which seem to be redundant. Why doesn't God simply say lech? What would have been lost if God had said go instead of go? Lecha, for yourself, Rashi says. But the Ishbitzer says not for yourself, but to yourself. That this journey that you're embarking on is a journey toward a deep uncovering of your true self. You're going to find this core of integrity within you. And in that journey, it's a journey both toward God and toward yourself. And when you discover one, you're going to discover more of the other. And that's going to be constantly reinforcing. To me, this is very reminiscent of Bereshit chapter one, of the Tselem Elohim, of a human being being hardwired to seek that godly truth within oneself. And I think that's essentially what he's saying is going on here. Lech Lecha, that, that supremely personal journey is going to be a journey that unites you with God. Which I think, you know, for many of us, this, you know, we, we often think of, we find God in the external world. You want to find where God is? Well, Maimonides would have us look at the laws of nature and look at the amazing world we live in, which is very possible. Or look at the miracles, look at the story of the Jewish people. But this is something very different. You want to figure out who God is and what God is. Look inside yourself. Look inside yourself. Look inside yourself. There's another clue in the text. It's not right here in Lech Lecha, but it is in this parasha, where there's a war between four kings and five kings, and a refugee from the war comes back to talk to Avraham. Avraham is described in this unique way. He's called Avram Ha'ivri. All of a sudden, this is his appellation. And the question is, why of all things call him that? And the Midrash, I think, is right on target when it says, why is he called Avram Ha'ivri? This is where the term Hebrew is born, um, the translation of Ivri. But, he, but the Midrash says he's called Ivri because from the word Ever, meaning on the other side, that all the world is on one side and Avraham is on the other side. So they're, they're seeing, even in that little hint, this notion that Avraham is this iconoclast, this person who stands for something else, who isn't influenced by conventional wisdom or conventional pressures. It's a person who is on that everlasting journey toward truth, which is an inner truth, just as you said. It's an inner truth, and that truth, the more he follows it, the closer he's going to get to God. There's also an interesting balance, I think, in what you described. On the one hand, he's not determined by the society around him. His individuality is expressed by his being able to stay in his own path. On the other hand, he's not disengaged. There's a war, and he goes out to fight the war. His attitude is not, well, I'm Ivri, I'm on the other side. All of you guys go do whatever you're going to do. His attitude is, I'm coming from the other side, but I know what's right, and I'm going to engage. Okay, so you're already a step ahead of me. Oh, I cheated. It's okay, it's all right, you've read it before. I want to get there, because, of course, this begs the question, are we going back to some kind of overcorrection, right? We tried it with extreme individualism, we tried it with extreme social awareness, 
is God basically saying with Abraham, it actually works better with only the individual. And I think what you're telling us, and I don't think anybody will be surprised to hear that that's where all this is headed, is that it's going to be some kind of a healthy balance between the two, but that it begins just as Bereshit, Aleph, and Bet, one and two, begin with this. It starts with the individual, and as Buber would say as well, that's the critical piece. You can't be a successful social being unless you know yourself first. And you can't even be a, a, a successful spiritual being unless you know yourself first. You have to be on that journey all the time. And then you will be better capable of reaching out to all those important others. So it begins with the lech lecha. The lecha. journey begins by looking inward before exactly. we start to move exactly. out. Exactly. So then the question, of course, is, well, then what? Okay, do we stop there? Yeah, that there? would be helpful to Does know. Does he remain within himself and he can be the, you know, the frumest person around, right? He's spiritually perfect, but what good is he to the rest of us? We should really pause now and make all the <laughs> listeners tune in for next week, but we're not going to do that. That's you not will. our pattern, no, so, no, no, so no, keep no. going. We're so we need to know where okay, we're going to Okay, I won't leave you hanging here. I want to address this. I want to get back to one last text that I think actually explicitly relates to the question that is not addressed at the beginning of Lech Lecha. Why Avraham? Well, if we are patient and wait six chapters, we actually are told in the text, but in God's own voice, why God chose Abraham to begin with. And that is in chapter 18, when God is about to destroy the evil cities of Sodom and Amorah, God says, I better tell Avraham what I'm about to do, because after all, I have singled him out. And what is the purpose? Why did I pick him of all people? I've singled him out. In order that he will instruct his children, his household after him. And here comes the remarkable part. Those descendants who learn this from Abraham will keep the way of God, which is tzedakah umishpat. Okay, this text, no matter how many times I look at it, blows me away in so many ways. First of all, the fact is, it's future-oriented, lima'an. Basically, the text is saying, you're asking the wrong question if you're asking, what did Avraham do to deserve this? It's not about anything he did in the past. If that were the case, it wouldn't have said lima'an, it would have said biglau, because of something that's already happened. Lima'an is completely future-oriented. Basically, God chooses Abraham to place a huge, weighty responsibility on his shoulders. Maybe what it's telling us is that God sees some kind of potential in Abraham to do this, but God is saying, this is what I want you to do going forward. It's a job. It's a task. That's number one. And what is truly astounding is the description of what that responsibility is. It comes down to two words, derech Hashem. And many people today use a phrase that drives me crazy, on the derech, off the derech. If we've got a derech, it is in God's own words, it is two words, and they both mean the same thing. Tzedakah umishpat. Want to follow Derech Hashem, be a righteous, upstanding person. And what God is saying to Abraham is, this is your job, to teach it to your children. And here, we don't have time to go into it, but I just want to telegraph this, that Shadal, the great Italian exegete, Luzzato, says that it's a two-step process where God tells Abraham to instruct his own family in Tzedakah umishpat. And at the foot of Mount Sinai, the second stage of that happens, where God then turns to those descendants and says, now I want you to do this for the rest of humanity. So basically what God is planting here is is an instructor of tzedakah umishpat, that is Avraham. Avraham is to teach 
all of his people, his descendants, that, so that they can then spread that practice throughout the world. So I'm just going to recap. Please. Avram is chosen. We get the big reveal later on because he is going to be an instrument to pass on the values of righteousness. If that's a good translation Mm -hmm. or not, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And that ultimately that job that he has to give his clan, his immediate descendants, ultimately is going to be the job of the Jewish people as part of our covenant with God to teach the whole world about these concepts and values. And if I link it to what you said before, our ability to do tzedek and mishpat is somehow linked to our finding our tzelem elokim within us. Precisely. Our tzelem elokim within us, that that move toward God is paved with tzedakah u mishpat, and that's what we have to hold on to. Okay, now I don't think I need to spell out how what we're reviewing today is the absolute antithesis of this, where we have this evil organization called Hamas that is saying we have to destroy the Tselem Elohim of countless, I, the death toll is not completely in yet, but how many people have died. And in doing it, what they've shown us is that they have erased any semblance of Tselem Elohim within them. And it, I think it takes that erasure to be able to erase others. But we're getting back to something else. I think what this text is doing is saying we stand for everything that that is not. And I want to just get back to one last textual piece, and that is getting back to Lech Lecha, the first couple of psukim, the first couple of verses of Lech Lecha, where I think it kind of telegraphs all of it, where it starts with Lech Lecha, go into this extremely personal space, and we know that what is Avraham supposed to leave? Leave your family. Leave your nuclear family. Leave the people who are closest to you. Give up your family in order to go on this journey toward self and toward God. And then, again, lest you think that that's the end of the journey, because that would be a person who is like perfect but self-satisfied and disconnected, what we get is God says, I'll make you great, I'll give you blessing, and we have the word bracha appearing here over and over again five times, but what completes God's words here, I think so significantly, v'nivrechu v'cha kol mishpechot ha'adama, all the families, and I don't think that word is chosen lightly, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you that that blessing is not to remain within you. If you really want to bring bracha to the world, you have to help instruct them to find tzedakah umishpat, to find their tzelem Elohim, to treat one another as if they are full human beings in God's perfect image. And then what Abraham is essentially doing, he gave up that nuclear family in order to create these ever-increasing circles around himself until he incorporates larger and larger numbers of people in his family until he includes all mishpachot adama. It's an incredibly inclusive universal statement, right? Start with this particular lecha and end up with, in you, your family is now going to include nothing less than the entire earth. And, and family is such an important metaphor. One would argue family is where we learn our lesson on how to develop our individuality and still care for others and see others as being essential to our well-being and survival. Beautiful. And then maybe yeah. the ultimate goal is yeah. to somehow see the whole world, all of humanity, as part of a common family, which suggests that Jewish particularism you could argue, really is heading towards this achievement for all of humanity. So we are confronted with an enemy who has developed a social identity 
that has no trouble eradicating us from the earth in the cruelest, most vicious way possible. And yet we are on this other path to teach the world about tzedek and mishpat. And I feel compelled to ask you, because I need some strengthening. <laughs> mm-hmm. The world frequently points fingers at us as being the opposite of tzedek and mishpat, which is galling to say the least. But we pay such a price for this mission. That's what I'm feeling these days more than anything else. And I'm sort of saying, how do you maintain your own sense of staying on this mission when we pay such a terrible price? No easy questions on this podcast, folks. Well, look, I think you just kind of signaled it when you say it goes back to the micro. I don't think we can do it on a large scale. I think it starts within us to be the best human beings that we could possibly be, to practice and find within ourselves the Tzalem Elohim, to reach out to the people who are directly around us. And I think every single day we get new opportunities to practice this with the people who are closest to us, which arguably is the most difficult work to maintain that in your natural environment. And to know that you're doing it, to hold on to that sense of integrity and just little by little build outward and hope that those ripples will help influence not just our own people, but people who are watching. And, and to believe that the mission is possible. I feel like when we are confronted with so much evil, I personally have a sense of yeah. there's no hope. Yeah. We're surrounded by evil. This is the worst evil that, that could exist, and mm-hmm. especially 75 years or so after the Shoah. And for me, that's where my mind goes yes. after seeing what we've been seeing. Absolutely. And yet uh, we have to read these parshiot. We have to read these passages of the Torah and somehow maintain a faith in the doability of this mission, which, if I understand you correctly, is to maintain a belief in the Tselem Elohim of humanity in spite of these horrible, terrible things that make us think otherwise. Keep our own journey going, our own lech lecha, our own derech, derech Hashem. I think that is not a coincidence that the word derech is used. It's a path. It's a path, and it's a path that starts inward and then just builds itself outward. I want to leave you with one pasuk. I don't know if this will help you, but... I hope it does. The verse in in Isaiah (laughs) predicts that things have to get better, and I think it's significant that our word Hamas is in there. Lo yishama od Hamas ba'artzech. Right? Violence, Hamas, will not be heard in your land again. Shod v'shever b'gvulayich, wasting or destruction within your borders. V'karat yishua chomotayich u'sharayich tehila. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise tehila. Glory, praise. All I can say is yihiratzon, yihiratzon. Well, we are all uh, praying for that together and... Uh trying i know i'm personally trying to maintain a certain element of optimism i think you've helped me a lot and and maybe it's no coincidence that we're going to read these partiot now about our job towards humanity and what we're all about and uh, reconnect to those things to the best of our ability and that someday the walls that we see around us which we just associate with protection and fear and violence are going to sing the praises of god yeah Wow, I really hope that happens soon because I, I'm running out of patience. I don't mind telling you, I'm really running out of patience. But we'll pray for it to happen very soon. Judy, I cannot thank you enough. You've helped me. I hope all of you who have listened not only gained from the wisdom that Judy brought, but a little bit of the emunah, the faith, and the strength that came through it as well. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to, or trying to look forward to, better, happier times for the Jewish people in the world. Thank all of you for listening. Uh, please uh, check in with us again next week. Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast. 
recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.